Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Lawcast. This time, we're going back to cover the final Thanksgiving Starcade. It's Starcade 87, the sabotage of Starcade. Pusch, how, how, how did this Starcade go so bad so fast? Gosh, there's so many ways. Um, I mean, if you have to point to just one thing, you can kind of just start with what we talked about on the last podcast in Magnum TA, right? Like, everything just sort of turns into a tailspin after the pretty epic failure of Starcade 86. Suddenly, Vince becomes much more powerful. WrestleMania 3, an outrageous success. He starts to take over the world. And Dusty Rhodes and Jim Crockett get this huge inferiority complex and get obsessed with the idea of replacing Ric Flair with somebody else, anybody else. And all of that just kind of leads us inexorably to hear a disaster among disasters. Yeah, there's a series of cardinal sins here. There's the decision to move the show out of the South and run Chicago instead of Greensboro and Atlanta, as they had done to enormous success in the last few years. I mean, the year before, they had drawn like 30,000 people between the two arenas. Here, they more or less sell out the UIC Pavilion in Chicago, but that's only a crowd of about 8,000 people. So they draw less, I mean, like less than a third of the gate that they could have. Yeah. And to be clear, this isn't a bad gate. Like if you ran like a bunkhouse stampede or a great American bash here and you sold it out, that's fine. That's a, you want to expand into other markets so you seem like less of a regional promotion. Okay, cool. That would have been a good idea. But to do it at Starcade, you're literally giving away hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's yes. a disaster. Like it's it's just a bad decision. And I feel like it was a betrayal of their fans in Greensboro and Atlanta, Absolutely. many of whom had been going to these Thanksgiving shows for literally decades. Like that was a tradition that went back for decades in both cities. So this might have literally, for some people, been literally the thanks, first Thanksgiving in 20 years they didn't go to the wrestling matches that night. How many times have we seen this over and over, not just in wrestling, but in sports and entertainment and whatever, where the thing that you build your entire company's success on, as soon as you get to a certain point, they just abandon it and they lose the foundation of their success. So later, when things go bad, they have nothing to fall back on because they betrayed those fans already. It's the same kind of thing ECW did when they just started going to like Florida and all these weird places. And once they tried to expand and then they didn't take care of the fans who were there before, those original fans just start to tune out because it doesn't feel like it's for them anymore. It doesn't feel special. It's a bad decision. So this is the first ever NWA pay-per-view. The previous Starcades had all been broadcast on closed circuit TV to you know, arenas kind of that they ran as part of their regular house show loops. This time they're going to go national on pay-per-view. You know who doesn't like that idea? Vince McMahon. Gosh, I wonder why. Yeah. So when he hears they're going on pay-per-view, he starts calling all the pay-per-view providers, you know, telling them don't run, don't run Starcade, don't do it. And they're like, and eh, screw you, Vince. Like, we want to make money. We're going to run the show. So he decides he's going to run his own pay-per-view the same night. And thus, the Survivor Series is born. Now, this is one of the all-time great bluffs in the history of business. Because Vince tells them, all right, well, 
if you don't run Survivor Series instead of Starcade, you can't show WrestleMania yeah. four. This is after WrestleMania three has been, I think, the biggest success in the history of pay per view to this point. Probably it did like a hundred thousand buys, which was like a ten buy rate at the time. Right. The problem with that is. Of course Vince isn't going to not put that shit on pay-per-view. Like, he'd be giving away millions of dollars. No, that is laughably I mean, ridiculous. But, you know, people fell for it. So what happened first is, initially, Crockett moves Starcade to the afternoon when Survivor Series is going to be in the evening. Yeah. So they won't have to go head-to-head with Starcade. And then, like, pay-per-view companies are like, oh, cool, we get to sell two shows. And some of them even start offering people, like, you know, five bucks off if you buy both shows. And that's when Vince is like, no, you're not understanding this. Like, if you show Starcade, you can't have Survivor Series and you can't have WrestleMania. At which point, basically all the cable systems agree to show Survivor Series because WrestleMania is the big game in town. Now... I don't want to harp on this too much, but let's say that Magnum TA doesn't get hurt and they have like a super hot mega star in the NWA that they're promoting this show around instead of rugged Ronnie Garvin. (laughs) I'm not saying that it would have made a difference because the amount of money involved with WWF pay-per-views at this time is unbelievably higher than anything Starcade can match, but it's a harder decision than this one is. Because this prop, this already wasn't looking like it was going to be much of a show. No, I mean, the main event is Ric Flair versus Ronnie Garvin. It's not big time. So the only systems that carry Starcade are some cable systems in the Carolinas, and then one in San Jose for some reason that I think was just run by a guy who like just refused, you know, an honorable guy who refused to go back on, you know, his word to Crockett and didn't want to cave to Vince being a bully. I can't remember how true this is or not. I feel like this is just part of a backstory that I remember, but I I know that Dave Meltzer is from like San Jose. Yes, he is. And and so he's one of the few people who actually got to watch this Starcade. Yeah. So I think he watched Starcade and then like drove to a friend's house like an hour away to watch Survivor Series is the story I've heard him tell. It's just very funny that of course yeah. he would. I bet he was calling the office every day being like, hey, can you can you show Starcade? We really want to see Starcade. Just using a bunch of fake names like, hi, yeah. I'm Tina. I want to watch Starcade. <laughs> um, this is the beginning of the end of Jim Crockett promotions. We've oh, covered yeah. Starcade 88, which is when you know the company had gone bankrupt and Ted Turner had to buy it. But the mistakes start here. They've you know bought the UWF from Bill Watts, which was just an extreme. Bill Watts was about to go out of business, and they threw him like a multi-million dollar lifeline when his company was clearly going to go bankrupt, and they could have just picked off all his talent for nothing. Well, let's kind of put the entire wrestling scene in context at this moment, because Vince's national success has come at the expense of a lot of other people, but also yeah. a lot of other things, too. The economy starts to dip after being so absolutely hot throughout the 80s. World class in Dallas dies because yeah. the oil boom dies. Particularly off. Yeah, in the Southwest, which is what killed Watts. As soon yeah. as he's trying to go national, like his home base, the economy collapses with the oil glut. Yeah. Other than Crockett, the two biggest oppositions, the three biggest oppositions are the AWA, UWF, and World Class. The latter two, the oil crisis absolutely destroys them. They're dead forever. Also, all the dead Pon Eriks died, too. But, like, that's a whole other thing. And then Byrne just 
books his company into the ground and then it's dead here pretty soon. So that literally leaves the Crockett's as the sole competition. Now, in theory, that puts them in an incredibly good place because they can be the beneficiaries. They can soak up all that extra talent, all those extra like uh, like syndication spots like that. There's an opportunity in that. But it also puts an enormous amount of pressure on them to compete with Vince solo. No, and the UWF does not pay off at all because no. they don't do any. I mean, we watch this show. Like, there's UWF talent on this show. They aren't really pushed much at all. The only guy who ends up amounting to much of anything from the UWF is Sting, who, of course, we'll talk about. I mean, I uh, guess Rick Steiner came over too, but yeah, that yeah. won't be for a couple years. They do other dumb things. They buy an office in Dallas, like for no other reason than Dusty Rhodes wants to live in Dallas and work there. Like could have told him, Dusty, like just get a house and you can work from your house and call us on the phone. Um, They start signing wrestlers to guarantee contracts because they think we're going to have all this pay-per-view money. Like we're going to run four pay-per-views a year. We're going to make millions of dollars. We'll be able to pay everybody. doesn't work out that way. It's just so funny because – it's such a miscalculation. Like this company was succeeding on its own merits in such an incredibly strong way. And you can absolutely see a version of this company that could have kept succeeding. But they just decide that they're this gigantic monolith before they've even gotten there, before they've even sold their first pay-per-view buy. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, they just needed to take it more slowly. Funnily enough, the same kind of thing actually happened to Ring of Honor where like they decided to go national by going on pay-per-view and they were like, yeah, we're going to do it. This is going to be so cool. And then TNA who shared all of their top talents were like, Oh, well then in that case, we'll just take all of your talents that work for us and not let them work there. And it murdered ring of honor. (laughs) This multiple times in history, the people have made the same mistake. So they're going on pay-per-view for the first time. They need someone to wrestle Ric Flair for the world title. And, of course, it's Ron Garvin. Now, shall we talk about the people who were suggested to be part of this? Because the NWA board of directors still has to approve this person, even though everyone knows they're only going to hold it for like three months. So there was so there was a Rick Steiner was suggested. That's that's the year after this. That's 88. He was still suggested, even though oh, 88 was God. taken much more seriously. Yeah. Um, Barry Windham was suggested. And him and Flair had a really great program. I can't remember if it was in 86 or 87. Um, Dusty Rhodes again was suggested, though nobody took yeah. that very seriously. Nikita was suggested again. At one point, Bobby Eaton was suggested by a member of the board of directors. <laughs> All of these are bad choices. (laughs) Yeah. The only realistic choices are maybe one of the Road Warriors, maybe what they eventually do, which is Ronnie Garvin, or Dr. Death Steve Williams, who's the UWF champion coming in. And that's what most people usually focus on. Though I will argue to my death that it should have been Sting. (laughs) The thing is... We're only the clash of the champions with Sting and Flair is like four months after this. So it's not like a lot happens for him between here and then. And that draws a gigantic rating and is a great match and a huge success and catapults him to stardom. 
So you could probably just have done this mat that match right here. So there's a huge benefit of like retrospect for us now yeah. because that match at the time seemed like why are you putting this green kid in there with flair? And then of course it was a huge success. But there's nobody probably could have foreseen that coming. But it's almost like to draw a corollary in WWF in 2003, I want to say. Brock Lesnar fought Hardcore Holly at the Royal Rumble for the world title, right? If Hardcore Holly wins that belt, and, or you could have had, like, a young John Cena who's not all there yet win the belt, if one of them had to do it, you're definitely not going to pick Hardcore Holly. No. And that's what they did here. They picked Hardcore Holly. Yeah. I mean, I have heard it claimed that other people were offered the spot, but they turned it down because they know it's a short-term title run. I don't know if I actually believe that. Like, who would turn down being the world champion, even if it's only, you know, quote-unquote, only for two months? And, like, who would have even turned it down? Like, there aren't that many people here who have that kind of an opportunity. Like, Dusty wouldn't have turned it down. He held the belt for a short time a bunch of times. Like, yeah. Who is maybe one of the road warriors would have turned it down over that. Maybe I guess maybe, but yeah, I mean, there's some merit to do it. Flair against one of the road warriors here in Chicago might've made sense. And they did flare against Hawk at the bunkhouse stampede um, in January. That is the funny thing is that we're in Chicago, which prior to CM Punk existing, Chicago was the road warriors town. That was the only act that was synonymous with the city of Chicago. Like, and the Road Warriors here are outrageously over. So doing something with them or just having them be the main event of the show would have made a ton of sense. To do it at the Stampede literally the next month, like, that that was very strange. Indeed. That was not the strangest thing about the Bunkhouse Stampede. Nope, it sure wasn't, buddy. So to mix things up, rather than have Garvin be the challenger, they had him beat Flair for the title in Detroit in September. What do you make of that? Well, Dusty always said that the reasoning was is that they thought people were sick of watching Flair defend the belt and would be much more interested in watching him try to win it back. I don't know. Based on the reactions of the fans in attendance, they didn't see they did seem really excited to well, see totally Flair, lose, Flair and did not give a shit about Garvin. Well, here's the problem. Because if it's just Garvin competing with Flair for the belt, Garvin doesn't get this unbelievably negative reaction from people because he won the belt when he shouldn't have, right? Like if this is just you build up Ronnie Garvin for 4 months to see if he can beat Flair and then he can't. Okay. Even if Garvin wins this match after building him up like that, it's still a no, but it's more of a maybe. To have him just stunningly out of nowhere beat Flair, ending his, like, four-year reign as the champion, it's pretty fucking crazy. Yeah, so tonight we get a rematch between Flair and Garvin in a steel cage for the belt. We've also got Lex Luger versus Dusty Rhodes for the U.S. title. Also in a steel cage. I guess double steel cage matches are kind of a star cage tradition at this point. Is it weird that they didn't put the Road Warriors in the cage? A little, yeah. I mean, if I were booking this and they forced me to do all of these same matches, I just would have put the Road Warriors versus the Brain Busters in the main event and put them in the cage, right? Like, yeah, but then you couldn't have done the fucked finish they did, which yeah. they shouldn't have done anyway. We'll get to that, oh boy. And, yeah, Road Warriors versus Arn and Tully for the tag belts and a scaffold match between the Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express. 
yes, for some godforsaken reason, they do another scaffold match. There had to have been a moment in 1987 where Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane were like quietly driving down the road together. And they just looked at each other and said, are they going to make us fall off the scaffold every fucking year from now on? Because this is two years in a row they got to take that bump, ladies and gentlemen. It Eaton and Lane the year before. It was Condry and Lane, right? Oh, Condry and Eaton. Yeah, Condry, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, this is the first. This is when they've sw- This is when they switched to Stan Lane. Which so it's just poor Bobby Eaton, the only man ever in NWA history to take this bump twice. And they don't make Cornette do it this time. Thank God. Though so I can't wait. What they teased having happened oh, was God. so fucking weird. Once we get to that. All right, so it's Thursday, November 26th, 1987, Thanksgiving afternoon. Um, I don't know the exact start time of this show. I want to say like 2 o'clock Central, maybe 3 o'clock Eastern sounds right. I guess, when would you say is the time that most people eat Thanksgiving dinner? This is a good question. Um I'd say my family is probably unique in that we always eat at halftime of the Lions game, but that's a particular regional thing. So you can have a a real silent dinner as they're already down by 20 points. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) But yeah, I I don't know. I think we eat fairly early. Um, I think our family normally eats at like seven o'clock. When I was growing up, it was anywhere between like four and seven. Like it was kind of, I would would never want to wait that long. So I like eating in the early afternoon because then I get to eat like, you know, some pie or some leftovers for dinner that night. Which makes total sense. But that's the tricky thing about trying to program for the afternoon, right? Like you don't want to put it on like before the whole family's over to watch the show. And while people are traveling and stuff, yeah, that is tough. The afternoon is not the ideal time slot. And you don't want it on at the same time as like the Cowboys game that everyone in the United States of America always watches, just like they did this year, 24 million people. Yeah. Oh, so we're at the UIC Pavilion in Chicago, Illinois, about 8,000 people in attendance looked full. At the very beginning, there were some empty seats, but those filled in pretty quick. So I, th- I think they pretty much sold this out. I don't know if this is just a small arena or if it just... It is. Be- yeah, it, like, they film it in such a way that it feels very close. Like, it almost feels like the ECW arena and close yeah. of, like, how small it feels. I got the sense that it was much bigger than that, but they, they for some reason, were just shooting it really tight. Yeah. I think it might have more like 10,000 seats. So I don't think it was quite full, but uh, it looked like everything. You don't see empty seats other than like during the opening match when the crowd is still getting into their seats. And let's say this. Every time they pan the crowd, the crowd's going fucking nuts for this show. Like They're into it. It's not that they're not. It's not like last year where the crowd literally hated most of the show. Uh, the show does a 3.3 buy rate, but that's on very limited systems. They only did about 20,000 buys here. Yeah, if you weren't doing huge like failure, if you weren't doing like way higher numbers than that, because like even of the systems that they did have access to, they still weren't getting a high enough percentage of those homes. So that means that not only were they not on enough pay-per-view providers, but they also weren't drawing just with the pay-per-view providers they were yeah. on. And these, this was in their absolute key markets. Like it, yeah. was the, the Carol, it was the Carolina systems that covered it. That's their home base. But, I mean, how many people had access to pay-per-view in the Carolinas at this point? That's a big advantage the WWF had is 
Like in terms of like places that are wired for pay-per-view, you would think it would mainly be the Northeast and like Chicago and the strong WWF towns. But this is another miscalculation for them is that they probably were just like, well, we still got the Carolinas, right? Like that's always where we've been the hottest, blah, blah, blah. That's not what Starcade was. It wasn't just a bunch of farmers from Greensboro come into the show. It was people from Virginia and South yeah. Carolina and Georgia and Alabama and all the surrounding southern territories would drive up for for Starcade. That's what made it so big. And so you're missing all of that. None of those people can watch this show. And they had cl- they had closed circuit this time as well, but I don't have a number for that. Yeah, it couldn't have been very big, or they would have boasted about it to make this feel better. On commentary, making his Starcade debut, Jim Ross and the veteran at this point, Tony Schiavone. Always like them together as a team. It's a little unusual in that they're both kind of naturally play-by-play guys, but I always thought they worked well together. Yeah, it is funny that, what, like 30 years later, we finally got them back together yes. as a team. But, like, really, the biggest impact anybody had coming over from UWF was Jim Ross. Yeah. Like, they were ready to replace Gordon Soley. And this is where he just basically becomes the new voice of this combined company. And it's it's so refreshing to have him here. As much as I like Bob Cottle, and believe me, I do. And as much as I love Gordon Soley, and believe me, I do. By the time 86 rolled around, man, they were getting long in the two. It was nice to have a new voice for this show. Oh, we open with snazzy music and a light show. And then JR and Shivani welcome us to the show. And then we've got our opening match, a six-man tag, Rick Steiner, Eddie Gilbert, and the living legend Larry Zbysko take on Sting, Michael Hayes, and Jimmy Jam Garvin. Um, I believe these are all alumni of the UWF. Yes. This is very, very weird. Because if I asked you to tell me who the heels and the faces are in this match, I think most people would be like, they're all jumbled up, maybe? Kinda. Like yeah. it's it's like Eddie Gilbert, Zabisco, and Steiner are the heels, but yeah, I don't know if Rick has his character yet that he's like slow and being manipulated, or if that comes later. But yeah, like that's definitely the heel team, and like yeah. Sting and the Freebirds are way over his baby faces. Yeah, this is maybe like the most misremembered part of Sting's career was the fact that Eddie Gilbert was initially his mentor. And that he has just broken with Eddie Gilbert and turned babyface. Yeah. Sting is already a star. Like, oh, my God. He's already popping for Sting. He's, he's explodes he's, off the screen. He's like he, he looks uh, – he's much more muscular than I feel like he would be even a few years after this. The NWA has never been a muscle man territory, obviously. That's why the Road Warriors and Lex Luger always stood out. But Sting – Always had this great way. He's not like a huge bodybuilder like Sting and the Road Warriors. And he's not like a pure like athlete like Flair or whatever. He's somewhere in the middle. So he just seems special and athletic and yeah. photo ready, you know? He's explosive. He's fast. He jumps. Like he's just a d- different kind of wrestler. He is the only person on this show who wrestles anything remotely like what you'd call a high flying style. Like, he basically replaces Hector Guerrero from the year before, which is nuts. Uh, the faces dominate the early portion of the match. I love when they do the thing where, like, each guy tags in and finds, like, a different way to work the heel's arm. Yeah, I do love that. It's like, oh, I'll show you something. 
By the way, I, I do need to mention too, since almost all of the music is replaced on these shows, as much as I don't like Michael Hayes and have complained about him so much over the years, how happy are you when you hear Bad Street USA? Oh, the best. I, lo- I love their entrance. It's like, so watching good. Them get down, yeah. It's just that and flair on these old WCW shows are the only actual music that remains. Yeah. And it's just so refreshing to see them come out. Uh, the heels manage to get control and they work on Garvin as the announcer calls seven minutes gone. Garvin makes the hot tag to Sting as the announcer calls 10 minutes gone. Sting comes in hot, but Zabisco rakes his eyes and the heels start to work him over. Steiner locks in a sleeper as the announcer calls three minutes left. Sting tags out to Hayes as we reach two minutes left. You can probably guess where this is going. There's simultaneous 10 punches. Hayes hits a bulldog, but Zabisco gets a foot on the ropes to break the pin. One minute to go. Hayes gets a small package as we hit 15 seconds. Hayes with a sunset flip, but the time limit expires before he can get the pin. And then Sting hits the Stinger splash on Steiner after the bell to a big pop. Um, Okay, match. Did not need 15 minutes of this, but, you know, they were doing the Broadway here. It doesn't really get boring. The one good thing that the U- buying out the UWF does for like Rocket is there is so much talent on this show all of a sudden. Yeah. The last couple Starcades that we reviewed, the undercard is miserable garbage full of old men and people who suck. Now all of a sudden every match has nothing but good people in it. It's pretty wild. Yeah, I and mean so the like, other the other thing that helps is the show is only three hours long instead of yeah. four. Like they're not having to fill as much time here. This God, is only like a two. Refreshing. It's like a maybe a two hour and forty minute show here instead of a full four hours. Yeah, but all of these guys are stars. Like they would later either later become gigantic stars or have already been major stars. It, it's just really cool to see. Like this is a great opening match. It really gets the crowd up. Uh, second match for the UWF World Heavyweight Championship. We've got Dr. Death Steve Williams defending against Barry Windham. Um, I mean, if you're looking for a main event here, Dr. Death versus Flair in a unification match feels like it could have been big time. I mean, there's something that we have to talk about, and that's that Dr. Death Steve Williams in 1987 is not really ready for that role. He is incredibly raw on the microphone he's great in the ring don't get me wrong but he's not what he would eventually become right so you can build him as like this monster killing machine but i just i think they were right in thinking that he wasn't really ready for that role right here he really needed that run in japan first to really be ready so they put him here instead because barry windham is basically aside from dusty Rhodes, like the consolation prize He's basically just like, this is the best that you can face. And I really think that this would have been a really big deal match if it didn't live in infamy for what happens during it. Wyndham is the Western States Heritage Champion. That's a pretty uh, prestigious belt, Steve. Yeah. Who's your favorite time. Western States Prestige Heritage Champion? I can't even say, like, what does that even mean? <laughs> Why is it a heritage championship? What does heritage have to do with anything? Yeah. Uh, They do an amateur exchange for the first couple minutes. And then Williams tries to leapfrog Barry Windham, 
who we should remember is like six foot six. And <laughs> Wyndham accidentally headbutts Dr. Death right in the junk. Like, Here's the thing. Oh, it's bad. This looks for all the world like a spot. <laughs> like it doesn't look like an accident at first because Barry Wyndham tries to put his head down at the last minute to get underneath and he headbutts Dr. Death directly in his nutsack. This is maybe the funniest thing that's ever happened in a wrestling ring. I rewatched it at least 20 times. God. Dr. Death. How do you ever live this down? There's a reason he disappeared to Japan after this. He is literally being billed as like the toughest man on earth. He takes a headbutt directly to the balls and cannot stand up. He is, he literally needs medical attention. He has taken some damage. This is so similar to when Wyndham's namesake, Bray Wyatt, the Fiend, a.k.a. Wyndham Rotunda, got punched in the dick by Roman Reigns. Which is ironic because that happened, that was booked to happen. Yes. So, like, they would be booked this to happen to the Fiend. <laughs> this career-killing thing that happened once upon a time. Yeah, it feels like after this, Williams was just like, oh, no, I got to go to Japan for six months. Like, I got to get this stench off of me. And here's the wild thing. The story that they're telling in the match up to that point is that these guys are friends, even though Williams is invading. That's fucking weird. And, like, they're doing sportsmanship stuff right up until the point where Williams gets his nutsack destroyed. (laughs) And his testicles explode. So Wyndham just has to stand. It's not like Wyndham can put the boots to him and pin him. Like, no. they're being sportsmanship. Yeah, so Williams is down for a while. They improvise something. Wyndham goes for a crossbody, and Williams drops down. Actually, he probably just collapsed. He probably just fell. Because he's in so much pain. And Wyndham flies over the top to the floor. I just... the. I got to give Wyndham credit because he's trying to do like his best Ric Flair impersonation of, well, I guess I'm wrestling a broomstick now. Here we go. (laughs) Time to take some wild bumps. So Wyndham gets back in the ring and Williams gets him in a cradle and pins him. Crowd just shits on this. Heavy booze. To be clear, this basically kills the crowd for the rest of the night. (laughs) Like the crowd comes back a couple times here and there, but like, this really sets the tone for this show. I mean, I don't was this I don't feel like this was that big a match that you can be this upset that it was only 6 minutes long. No, but like it's just embarrassing, right? Yeah. And like this is a crowd like maybe in Greensboro where you built up so much credit with that audience yeah. they'll be like, "Oh, that's a shame." Well, on to the next match. But you're in Chicago, which first of all has always been a rabid town. Second to New York and Philly only in terms of if you fuck up, we're going to mock you for it. And this is their like first time trying to make a good impression there. The second match they put in the ring, some dude gets headbutted in the jewels. Yeah. Just the most embarrassing debacle imaginable here. It's fucking horrible. And the next match you put on is a fucking scaffold match. Yeah, we've got the Midnight Express against the Rock and Roll 
how can they be doing another of these after the disaster of last year? Let's recall Jim Cornette got his knees destroyed the year before this, falling off the scaffold. And here's the thing. I understand talking yourself into doing it the first time because fans have never seen it before. So there's that thing of like, oh, man, what is this? It's kind of like the Punjabi prison, right? <laughs> like you sell fans on the idea of yeah. like, what is this mystery structure? And then you do it and it sucks. You don't do it again. I mean, of course, the second Punjabi prison ruled and we as a podcast love it. But that's not neither here nor there. Why would you do it again after the failure of the first time? So we are subjected to another of these terrible matches. Um, Not much happens here. Bubba jumps Ricky before he can climb the scaffold. So Eaton and Lane double team Gibson. Ricky recovers. He climbs up and a very boring match ensues. Lane ends up hanging from the bottom of the scaffold. Lane then falls off to the bo- falls off from the bottom. I mean, it's a not a good bump, but it's a controlled fall. Like he he, he understands how to take this bump. He literally just turns around and starts like monkey barsing his way away so that he can take this bump. Ricky and Robert have no input on him falling off this thing at all. He's just like, no, fuck you guys. I'm just gonna take this bump my way. And Eaton falls too, and the Rock and Roll Express get the win after a bad match. Post match, Bubba climbs up the scaffold. This kind of kicks ass. Oh no, <laughs> Bubba! Bubba, like, Jim Cornette's like Bubba, go up there, and he starts climbing. He immediately like takes the coat off, takes the hat off, yeah. drops the suspenders, and he's standing on the scaffold. This is dumb as fuck, but I'd be lying if I didn't say this wasn't a little thrilling. As see soon this- as he goes up there, you're just like, oh my god, is he actually gonna fall off? Like, and- I think he would go through the ring. And Robert is already on, like headed down to the ground, but Ricky climbs back up onto the scaffold and is like, this is literally like the Balrog versus Gandalf in Moria. So what does Ricky do? He dick punches him. How crazy is it <laughs> that we got another dick punch on this show? And then Ricky flees smartly. Do you, think, do you think that Ricky and Robert were sitting in the back watching the Dr. Death match? We're like, well, shit, yeah. our finish was a disgrace, too. Yeah, just stole our heat. Motherfucker. We're going to yeah. do it anyway. Then Ricky puts on the hat and the yeah. coat and steals them and runs away. That is excellent. That is very cool. I like that a lot. The coat is like a trench coat on him. Honestly, I think. As much as everyone loved the Rock and Roll Express versus the Midnight Express, I would have paid just to see Big Bubba wrestle both of the Rock and Roll Express. Just get dick punched over and over? Yeah, just like him throwing them around until the inevitable dick punch. It's his weakness. Everyone's weakness is their dick. It's like a punch-out character where if you time the punch right, they go down. It's like if somebody met you on the playground is like, hey, you having trouble with Soda Popinski? Don't worry, you just got to punch him in his balls. <laughs> that would work. <laughs> there was a boxer who I who was the guy who fought Tyson at one point. That was like a signature move was the dick punch. Like I, Andrew Galata. I do not remember that. <laughs> yeah, I think like he was most notable because he punched a couple dudes in the dick. Can't be doing that. They don't Still allow that undefeated with a record of 0, 0, and 50. The Dick Man. Yeah. 
Oh, man. <laughs> Backstage, Bob Cottle interviews Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin. They say they're about to go out to party. And then Steve Williams comes in. He has no apologies for how he beat Barry Windham because it's all about being champion. He should apologize for that match. He absolutely should have been like, um, I'm so sorry to my family and my friends who I've disgraced. I wish he had come out just like ice in his nuts. And it was just like, hey, um, (laughs) our bad. Let's try again later. (laughs) Oh, man. Then we've got a unification match. It's Nikita Koloff, the NWA television champion, against Terry Taylor, the UWF television champion. Hooray, I guess. Now, this doesn't sound very exciting on paper, and let me assure you... It's not in reality. It's not. But what I will say is that Nikita Koloff, we kind of buried last time because he just wasn't over at all with the audience that he wrestled in front of against Ric Flair. He's over his shit here, though. Like, it took him a year, but the fans love him now. He's definitely come into his own as a babyface this time. He kind of kicks ass. Like, this match sucks, but it's mostly because Terry Taylor Terry Taylor, is, Taylor sucks. He just is incredibly boring. He's accompanied by Eddie Gilbert. Taylor spends the first five minutes stalling, and then Koloff dominates the match with his power, works on Taylor's arm. Taylor rakes Nikita's eyes as the announcer calls 10 minutes gone. Um, Nikita recovers. He sets up for the Russian sickle, but Taylor ducks and Nikita hits the turnbuckle. They go out on the floor and Taylor runs Nikita into the guardrail and the ring post. Nikita blocks a suplex and reverses it as the announcer calls 15 minutes gone. Nikita goes for a 10 punch Taylor counters with an inverted atomic drop. Gilbert gets Nikita with a chair shot to the knee behind the referee's back. Then Taylor puts on a figure four. Gilbert helps him with leverage until the referee catches him and forces a break. And then Nikita hits a Russian sickle out of nowhere to get the pin, which gets a huge pop. Well, first of all, like nobody's really doing a lariat these in those times. So the Russian sickle kicks ass, even though it's one of the weakest looking clotheslines I've ever seen. I don't know. It just kicks ass. Like they like Nikita and Nikita is actually, I could almost be talked into them trying to do like Nikita flair too. Now that he's actually over. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, honestly, like he's, he's, he's where they wanted him to be last year now. So he would have been, I think he would have been over as the world champion at this point. Yeah, if he had just gotten his rematch against Flair in September and beaten him, and now Flair's trying to get it back, I think it works. You can even yeah, turn Nikita close, back heel. Clotheslined the shit out of him, yeah. It's just much more credible for like a bigger guy to be that transitional champion. And because you can, you can just you can give Nikita a friend who turns on him to set something up for after Starcade. Yeah. I mean, I don't see why not. Yeah. Or like I said, turn <laughs> Nikita in between and then Flair's the triumphant babyface. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Next up for the tag titles, we've got Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard against the Road Warriors. Always love to see Arn and Tully teaming up and love that little moment they had on Dynamite the other week. There is nothing I love more than when, like, two guys with an incredible amount of history are in the same segment together, but you don't really realize it till they come face to face and suddenly yeah. you're like, ooh. 
Haven't seen the, like literally haven't had them interact on screen since like 1989 or 90 when they were in the WWF. Yeah. And I don't remember yeah. what Tully said in the promo app the next week, but it was something along the lines of, yeah, I know you packed that gap, but so do I. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Got these guys pulling Glocks on each other. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Arn goes to the top early. Hawk gets, like, grabs him for a press slam, which, like, is a common enough move off the top rope. But he doesn't just throw him off the top rope. He walks across the ring with him. Arn Anderson has got to be 280 pounds here. Also, I just want to point out that, like, there's a way that you normally do, like, the press slam kind of thing. Usually you're, like, holding the guy by, like, his taint and by his neck. And, or, like, you're, like, really trying to hold a singlet and it's, like, clear struggle. It's not even really clear what he's holding him up by. It doesn't seem like yeah. this is difficult for him at it's all. Ludicrously strong. It's crazy. Um... Tully manages to get his knees up when Animal charges him in the corner. He comes off the top rope, but Animal catches him out of the air with a power slam. The crowd is just crazy here. Like, oh just God. wild. They are only here for, for the Road Warriors. And of course, of course they are, because they kick ass. Uh, there's an inverted atomic drop by Animal on Tully. Animal with another incredible press slam on Arn. Hawk goes for a press slam on Tully, but Arn cuts his knee out from under him. Arn and Tully then go to work on Hawk's knee. Arn hits a DDT as the announcer calls 10 minutes gone. Tully goes for the figure four, but Hawk manages to roll through it with a small package. Hawk tags out to Animal. Animal comes in with a drop kick, but then Tully trips him. Uh, the referee goes down. The Road Warriors hit the Doomsday device. A second referee slides in to count the pin, and we've got new tag team champions. Or do we? Of course we don't. Now, if they had just yeah. done it, yeah, it's such a feel-good moment. The crowd is literally the entire place is out of their seats. They are lo- loving this. They came for this. They got it. They're so happy. But... <laughs> Yeah. The other thing is, you can do the way they did this at Starcade when Dusty won the title was they didn't strip him until the next week. Yeah, on that's TV. what you do. You strip him the next night, right? Yeah. Yeah. You do you not have to take the belts now. off him in front of the crowd here. But yeah, Tommy Young, the original referee, gets back in the ring and rules the match a disqualification because the Warriors threw Arn over the top rope. The Warriors, like badasses, refuse to give the belts back and just leave with them. Also, you don't just do it by DQ. You do it by the shittiest, lamest DQ reason. Like, we always think about this being like the Bill Watts bullshit, but it existed before that. And this over-the-top rope shit, man, it sucks. It sucks. And why didn't they just do it because the ref got bumped? Why didn't he DQ him for that? I don't know. That Can't makes way more that. sense. I don't know, man. It, it 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 literally lets the air out of the crowd so severely, and they don't come back until, like, literally Flair wins the belt at the very end. Uh, Bob Caudill interviews Nikita Koloff backstage. He says that was the toughest match he's ever had, and Terry Taylor is a great wrestler. This was actually a good babyface promo. It really was. 
Like, look, there's just something about Nikita here. I was not expecting to come away from this show and like impressed with Nikita Koloff more than anyone. He just kind of gets written out of history after Starcade 86. But it's a shame because he had more to offer. Yeah. Um, then we bring in J.J. Dillon. He talks about his relief that Arn and Tully are still the tag champions. He says Ric Flair is currently training for the main event, and you know, Dusty is challenging Lex Luger for the U.S. title next. This is a typical boring J.J. Dillon promo. We don't like J.J. Dillon. <laughs> Just maybe there was some heat to the fact that he was so boring. I've just never thought he was a very good manager. It's one of those things where, like, I know what they're going for. He's sort of like that smarmy sports agent, yeah. right? But he never really felt slimy enough. You know what I mean? He always just feels ineffectual and just kind of there. I want, if I'm going to have somebody being a sports agent type character, I want him, like, dripping in slime. You know what he does now? What's that? I believe he's the warden for a prison in Delaware. What the? Are you fucking serious? Yeah. You know what? That seems perfect for him. He seems exactly perfect as like an ineffectual, shitty bureaucracy warden at a prison. Popping it off the prison industrial complex. That's exactly right. The guy who throws you in solitary but makes you be like a stooge for him. Uh. And then we've got a steel cage match for the U.S. title as Lex Luger defends against Dusty Rhodes. Luger comes out wearing a flare robe, which is like the weirdest shit I've ever seen. Academically, we all know that Lex Luger was once a member of the Four Horsemen. It just doesn't compute. In practice, it just doesn't make any fucking sense. Now... It's an all-time great reveal when he takes the like. It's on par with Rick Rude taking the robe off when he shows that body. Yeah, arguably it makes more sense for Luger because when he takes it off, literally, like, I'm not saying that Lex Luger's an attractive man because he's not, but yeah. like, I almost gasped when he took it off. That body. For the most part, everyone on this show has not had great bodies. Even the Road Warriors, they're very muscular, but they don't have like they're just big. They're pow- they've got power lifter bodies. Like yeah. this is a bodybuilder. Lex Luger looks fucking insane. Yeah, like it's ridiculous. No, I mean Sting must have the second best body on this show, but I don't. It's not even close. It's not in the same ballpark. Yeah. Um. So the U.S. title is the only one that Dusty has never held, so he's trying to become the Grand Slam champion here. If he loses, he's suspended for 90 days, and Johnny Weaver is the key holder here. Now, they're making it sound like Dusty's going to retire if he loses, which is not the case. They just keep billing 90 it days. Way. Yeah, it's not really what it is. Just gets a vacation. Yep. Uh... Dusty works on Luger's arm for a while. Luger breaks out. He runs Dusty into the cage. Dusty blades. Dusty breaks out a drop kick. That is, as Dave Meltzer called it, the annual drop kick. The annual drop kick. It's a pretty good drop kick for a fat guy. He gets a little air. As much as we already think of Dusty as being like completely washed at this point, 
which is kind of silly because he's got like another five years left in him. Um, he's not really wrestling any different than he did in his prime here. No. Luger comes back with a backbreaker. He gets Dusty up for the torture rack, but he struggles to hold him. Dusty gets the ropes. Dusty fires up. He makes his comeback. He drops an elbow and makes a slow cover for a two count. He gets Luger in the sleeper. He jumps up on Luger's back. This is quite a showcase for how strong Luger is. Like, Dusty Rhodes is all of, like, 350 pounds at this point. Like, he's big. And, like, (laughs) Luger's carrying him around like a fucking backpack. Um, meanwhile, Johnny Weaver, JJ Dillon hits Johnny Weaver with a chair and steals the key. I think he could, maybe he was supposed to open the cage door, but he couldn't do it here. Cause he ends up just throwing the chair into the ring. Yeah. He drops the key. And like, literally when they do the replay later, Tony Schiavone's like, yep, this is where he drops the key on the ground and has to come up with a new plan. And he barely gets the chair over too. This could have been one of those embarrassing times where he just couldn't get it in the ring. I'm not really sure what they do in that case. I don't know. Yeah. Dusty gets Luger with a DDT on the chair and pins him. Truly reprehensible booking for Dusty to beat Luger at this point. It is. It cuts the legs out from Luger. Though, it must be said, this winds up becoming the impetus for Lex Luger's babyface turn. Yeah. Though, really, the impetus for it is how much... Ron Garvin fails in his role. And it's like, well, I guess we're super pushing Luger then, huh? Yeah. Luger gets to main event Starcade the year after this against and, Blair. And thank God, because that match rules and yeah. is actually good. This match did not rule. No, this match sucks. Dusty Rhodes probably doesn't have another good match ever. ever. Yeah. <laughs> I think the Stark... I think you would have to say that, like... What Great American Bash '86 is the last Flair, probably. Yeah, it's probably the last good match he ever had. Unless we're gonna count that match where he managed his sons against the Shield, because that fucking ruled. Yeah, Let, let's go ahead and count that because, yeah. again, there's a certain number of matches in WWE history and in wrestling history in general that it seems like only you and I remember or care yes. about, and that one is one of the ones on the list. That match. Yeah, just like, we're never going to cover that fucking show, because it was like, it was some godforsaken pay-per-view. It was like Battleground or something, I think. Yeah, like great Balls of Fire 2011 It may have literally the been fuck. the worst drawing pay-per-view in WWE history it was on. And it was literally in the mid-card of that show, but it just so happened to be the unbeatable yes. Shield tag team against the complete underdog Rhodes Brothers, and they yeah. win, and it's unbelievable. Dusty being like, you know, we'll do your match. One stipulation. I'm in my boy's corner. And Vince being like, second stipulation. You lose. You're all fired. Your son's careers are dead. Yeah. Oh, my God. That whole story. Them telling Dusty he has to pick which one of his sons can have a job is so brilliant. It's like, are you going to finally make up with your son you abandoned? Or are you going to preserve the career of your golden boy? Your there choice. Was like, there was like one promo where like gold dust goes up to Cody and is like, hey, I, I, I should just retire. Like, yeah. You can have your career. It's okay. And Cody being like, no, fuck that. No, we can do this. God. 
How did they not see what they could have had in Cody? I don't. Every single time we've ever mentioned a Cody Rhodes program, all we mentioned is that he destroyed it, murdered it, the greatest. He even did pretty well as Stardust, as stupid as that was. He talked an actor of a gigantic network TV show into wrestling him on SummerSlam. That's pretty good. Sorry, this is a Cody Rhodes stand podcast. Total aside, but yeah. Um, you know, we bury Dusty so much on these star kids. I feel like yeah. we got to put the guy over. It's Even cool. at his very advanced age at that point, there was just some brilliant promos, and he was the heart of that brilliant program. And here's the truth of it, too, is that, like, when we look back in the future on, like, Cody Rhodes's career, it's not going to involve a lot of us giving praise to, like, awesome matches he had on pay-per-view because he really hasn't had very many. It, a lot of it is, man, he had this really great idea. Man, he cut this really great promo. Man, he was so important to the fans and to the company he was a part of at this incredibly important time. He has – Cody Rhodes's legacy in the business will go far beyond the matches that he specifically had, just like his father's. Oh, you know when we could actually cover that match is if we did a season on the Yes Movement. Oh, we're doing that. We're doing oh, yeah. it. Doing it. <laughs> Book that. Yeah. Okay. It's main event time for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship inside the steel cage. It's Ron Garvin versus Ric Flair. Flair is out first to mostly cheers. Garvin comes out and is heavily booed. It's not this- good. Okay, let me paint you a word picture about Ron Garvin. If you've never seen Ron Garvin, and there's a really good chance that you never had. First of all, this isn't just Ron Garvin. This is hands of stone, rugged Ronnie Garvin. Oh, no. He comes out in these, like, tiny, sad red tights with, like, a red towel around his neck. He's one of the 85 wrestlers on the roster who has dyed his hair blonde to look like Ric Flair. He looks bad. He's like, he looks five foot eight. I don't know how big he actually is, but he's the only person Ric Flair's ever wrestled at Starcade who Flair is clearly bigger than. And so he's just this stocky little nobody. And his gimmick is just that he punches people really hard. That's it. That's his gimmick. It, for him to come out wearing the big gold belt, which literally covers his entire torso because he's so small, is just bad. He looks bad. The fans hate it. It's bad. Yeah. It just, for some guys, that belt is an anchor, and he's one of them. There's certain guys who just, when they get that belt, the crowd just turns because they know it's wrong. They know that guy isn't world championship material. I, it happened to so many guys in WWE over the years, like Jack Swagger, Sheamus. Like just a lot of when they were trying to push like their yeah. new generation. I mean, it happened to Roman. Yeah, That's exactly what happened. Roman got the belt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where like it would normally be a lot, but also you have to remember Ron Garvin is basically taking the place of Magnum TA because when Magnum couldn't win the belt, they just didn't have anybody win it. So Ric Flair has basically been champion for like four years, aside from like a two month period where Dusty Rhodes had the belt. Like this is the biggest rub you can get. This is the man who will defeat Ric Flair for that title. And it's Garvin. Yeah, it's Garvin. Like, 
again, let me use my hardcore Holly comparison again, because that's probably the most perfect corollary I can make. Yeah. As, like, they, even, a, they even look like each other. Yeah, a well-liked, hard-hitting, mid-card babyface. Except instead of him beating Lesnar there, let's say that he beats Lesnar after Lesnar's, like, three-year title reign. <laughs> he gets the rub they were building for Roman. Except when Roman gets leukemia, they bring back hardcore Holly and put the belt on him. That's what hardcore Holly would have suggested if he was the booker. Oh, absolutely. How about I get the belt and then I beat everybody? <laughs> but that's what they actually did. They did that with Garvin. Speaking his- of hardcore Holly, mm. this match may have had the stiffest chops I've ever seen other than hardcore Holly and Chris Benoit on Daniel Pooter. I think you're right. They are Man, trying these were so rough. Hard. Like, it's clear that Flair understands that no one's going to care about this match unless they do something nasty to each other. And that's what they do. Also, quick aside before we actually get into the match itself, Ronnie Garvin literally got pulled off of the house shows leading up to this show because they were drawing so unbelievably poorly. And I mean, like, half the attendance of the house shows that he wasn't on. Because people would see his name and say, oh, I don't want to go see him. That they literally pulled him off to say he was preparing for Starcade. Yikes. That is pretty bad. He is probably, provably, the worst world champion in the history of professional wrestling. That's brutal. Yeah. Um, Flair does the flare flop, but then he hits Garvin with a low blow, because we haven't had enough dick spots on this show. At this point, I just want uppercuts. Like, it's not enough to just low blow a guy. I, I need you to, like use the speed bag flair starts working garvin's leg he locks on the figure four and uses the ropes for leverage but garvin manages to turn it over garvin recovers and runs flair into the cage flair blades uh they climb the cage garvin runs flair's head into the cage again and flair falls off they trade chops flair gets the better of it he goes to the top but garvin throws him off and puts him in the figure four Flair manages to rake the eyes to escape. Um, Garvin runs Flair into the cage. He hits a crossbody from the top, but he only gets two. Garvin with a backslide for another two count. They fight on the top rope. Garvin knocks Flair off. He connects with the diving sunset flip. That's how he won the title in Detroit. But Flair sits down on him and grabs the ropes. The ref sees that, breaks Flair's grip on the ropes. Garvin rolls him into a pinning combination, but Flair kicks out. This was a good match. Like, as much as the crowd reactions were kind of weird and backwards, like, I thought this was a good, physical, fast-paced match. There's nothing wrong with this match just as a match. Like, again, if this match happens at the Bunkhouse Stampede, there's nothing wrong with this match whatsoever. For to happen at Starcade, like, adds all these other layers to it. But, like, I loved the way they kept referring back to previous matches. Yeah. Like, Garvin trying the thing that helped him beat Flair the time before, that was really cool. When Flair goes for, when Garvin goes for the crossbody to beat Flair the way Flair beat Race in 83, yeah. that was super fucking cool. Um, Garvin goes for the 10 punch. Flair counters with the inverted atomic drop. Garvin hits the KO punch, but Flair kicks out at two. Sorry, Garvin's Garvin. KO punch did look legitimately awesome. 
Oh like, yeah, I I think he he may well have had a boxing background. I mean, I don't know what it really. I I just love I love that you take a smaller guy and you just the hands of stone gimmick was so fun. They found so many different ways to make it work too. Just like somebody would like try to step on his hand and he just like look at him like my hands are made of stone, bro. Like yeah. it doesn't work. <laughs> What happens if he punches a Samoan in the head? Does the world Ooh, explode? They both explode, yeah. Yeah. Also, I don't know if you mentioned the, the Garvin stomp. Um, but, but the fan, after he does the Garvin stomp, which is the incredibly boring stomps that Randy Orton would do yes. later on as a heel, the crowd starts chanting Garvin stomp for like a solid five minutes. <laughs> Garvin charges Flair, gets run into the cage. Flair covers him and pins him. Like I said, I did enjoy that match. Crowd pops huge for Flair winning. I mean, he's really a babyface at this point. Yeah. Part of the bummer was that, like, it would have been great to see Flair face somebody that the fans thought might actually have a chance of winning this match. Because really, we were just kind of all biding our time until Flair won. But that doesn't mean it wasn't enjoyable when he did win. And the match was good. Like, it was. It just wasn't good enough to overcome the bullshit around it. Yeah. Um, and then Shivani throws us to a highlight package and we're out. Um, pretty disastrous show. I mean, obviously some of the problems here were not their fault, but a lot of them were their fault. The biggest problem that they had, and I actually read an interview where like Jim Ross and Ric Flair both acknowledged that like it pissed Ric Flair off so bad that they wanted him to lose the title so bad throughout this entire year They never built anybody. Even when they put the belt on Garvin, Garvin hadn't been pushed at all since the last time we saw him in 86. He lost that match and then never got pushed again and then suddenly got the belt. Like, just taking no effort to push anybody to come along behind, it just felt like they gave up after the Magnum TA thing. If they don't sign all these UWA guys or UWF guys, I have no idea what the future of this company looks like. Because all of those guys are the future of this company. <laughs> it's just a bummer to see them blow it so hard right when they had a chance. So they'll follow up this disaster with another disaster as they run the bunkhouse stampede in January. Well, Steve. <laughs> What's a bunkhouse stampede? Well, Steve, sometimes when two men go to... Nassau County, New York, <laughs> and decide that they want to wrestle in their overalls and jeans and shirts and underwear, long johns. They gotta have a battle royal where they throw each other out while they wear cowboy boots. Someday you and I are gonna settle our differences in a bunkhouse match. You're goddamn right. The last episode of the Lawcast, book it. <laughs> So the pay-per-view companies warned Vince off, like trying to run another pay-per-view that night. So instead he sabotaged them a different way by running the Royal Rumble on cable. The Royal Rumble drew like a gigantic, like 8.8 rating or something like that. And the bunkhouse stampede was a complete disaster. I yeah, think they printed the time wrong on the tickets, so they a bunch did. of people sh- a bunch of people showed up to the show an hour late. Yes, literally they were performing to like half a house right up until like the, the second to last match. Also, that this show sucks unreal amounts of ass. It's 
four <laughs> matches, and they're all 20 minutes long. Oh, Dusty Rhodes, of course, once again won the Bunkhouse Stampede for it's like just... the 15th year in a row. Also, ladies and gentlemen, I-, I know that we haven't fully explained what the Bunkhouse Stampede is because it's so much funnier to do the Bunkhouse <laughs> Stampede voice. But it's just a shitty battle royal with a bunch of people in street clothes. It's not cool. Nobody likes it. They're in a steel cage. They got to throw these, like people like out of the cage. But it looks like shit. Yeah, and everyone takes How do you even get somebody out of the cage in, in a remotely credible way? It, it doesn't make any sense to do that. Like what you like beat them up and you like drag somehow like everybody's got to go through the door, right? Like you Some could of the do guys bunk- went over the top. Like, you could do a bunkhouse stampede in, like, the TNA cage with, like, the big, huge door right in the front. Like, you'd just be chucking people out the door, I guess. But it's just bad, and it sucks. And r- literally, Dusty Rhodes wins every fucking bunkhouse stampede match. Yeah, because he's the baddest it, cowboy in all the land. It was just such an ego play. And for that to be one of their few pay-per-views... And to put that up against the Royal Rumble, the greatest gimmick idea of all time. Yeah. Ooh, that really puts Dusty in his place. Yeah. And then finally, Crockett got even in April when they would run the Clash of the Champions on TBS up against WrestleMania 4. That did a huge audience for the Flair Sting title match and was part of the reason that WrestleMania 4 was a disappointment business-wise. Not the it's whole actually reason. Fun. Yeah, it's, it's funny because, like, they really, really tap into the exact opposite for that one because WWF blows it with, like, their big show because that show also sucks really bad. Oh, my God. It's horrible. And finally, 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 the NWA puts on a show people actually want to see. They put, they find Sting. Suddenly, the world is bright and new. They got Luger and Sting. Thank fucking Christ. But truthfully, it's too late. After this show, I think you could very much argue that it's too late. Whatever opportunity that they had, it's over with. Yeah. No one's going to take them seriously on WWE's level again. No. And this, you know, obviously culminates with them being bankrupt and Ted Turner having to swoop in and save them. You know, thank God he did, or we would have had a wrestling monopoly much earlier than we actually did. There's a very realistic scenario where Vince buys out all four of his competitors. Like, UWF, AWA, World Class, and Crockett by the All, by 1990, yeah. and then the Which, wrestling industry's dead forever. Yeah, because when yeah. Vince goes down in the early 90s, there's just no one and nowhere for anyone to work or get better. It's just it's over. Wrestling's dead. It's over. There he killed it. Would have been no alternative at that point. Thank Sheesh. God Turner kept WCW in business. Thank Christ. So yeah. All right, and unbelievably. This is the final Thanksgiving Starcade. No. The end of a decades-long tradition. I mean, I, I'm sure they continued to run like house shows in Greensboro or Atlanta on Thanksgiving Day, but not the same. Like the WWF from this, you know, at least for the next few years, ruled Thanksgiving with Survivor Series, and then they eventually moved it to Thanksgiving Eve and then just moved it to, you know, a Saturday or Sunday in November. But yeah, really the end of the tradition of wrestling on Thanksgiving in the next couple of years after this. 
it's just funny that they spend like four years building this tradition, like Thanksgiving in huge. Greensboro. Huge. huge. And the biggest that went show. back decades. Yes. And then they just immediately, one year after next, destroy that entire tradition, leave it in the dirt, and then never come back to it. I don't, it doesn't bear thinking about, man. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. Yeah, they end up moving Starcade to Christmas time, where it will remain for the remainder of the time it exists until WWE brought back Starcade years later in the most half-assed way imaginable. I'm still salty about that. Could you even tell me what was on that show? Like the big Starcade return you'd been praying for your entire adolescence? No. Well, they're, they're, I think Dustin Rhodes wrestled as the natural, and that was awesome. I think you're right. I think that's the only thing I know about it. Yeah. Like, it just boggles my mind that Starcade is not a major brand at this point. I agree. But WWE is squatting on the trademark, and they refuse to use it. I don't know. I'm shocked, like, Triple H hasn't gotten Starcade to be an NXT thing yet. But here's the thing, and like I hate to come back to this so often, but realistically, Starcade hasn't been a real thing. No, since '86. Since '86, I am an old fucking man in the wrestling community. I am 36 years old. I was born a year before Starcade lost its relevance. That's a long time in the memory of this community. I mean. So, yeah, next week we jump forward in time. We've done a lot of December Starcades. We've done 88, Flair versus Luger. We've done 89, the Iron Man and Iron Team tournaments. We've done 90 and 91. Uh, no, 90 was the tag team tournament with the Black Scorpion in the main yes. event. Yes. 91 and 92 were the Battle Bowls. And then 93 had the great Flair versus Vader match in the main event. Wow, you named some really great matches there, Steve. What's this yeah. one got to offer? We jump forward to Starcade 1994, which is main evented by Hulk Hogan versus Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Oh my God! Yeah. Seriously, Hogan. Got Brutus Beefcake, the main event of Starcade. Ladies and gentlemen, it is with solemn reluctance that I tell you that this might be the worst show that we will ever cover, that we have ever covered. Maybe the worst show ever committed to air. This is Hulk Hogan versus Brutus Beefcake. It's Sting versus Avalanche. It's Mr. T versus Kevin Sullivan. Vader versus Jim Duggan. This wretched ass the pay-per-view especially when they could have just done hogan versus vader here which would have been a totally totally credible main event for starcade yeah you know how we know that steve it's the main event of the next pay-per-view after starcade yeah sweet jesus this show's gonna suck so bad it's gonna suck so bad all because Hogan had to get Brutide the main event. Oh, sweet Jesus, this is going to hurt. Made right. a solemn promise that we would cover every single Starcade. Okay, we don't normally do this because 
like normally like the promise of the next show is enough but i personally you got to tell me what's on the other side of that steve because this is going to be personally painful for me what what comes after that yeah what's the next one after that 96 Ooh, what's 96 hogan versus piper Hey! Uh, Luger versus the Giant. Hey! Uh, I don't, uh, the Outsiders against uh, the Faces of Fear, maybe? I don't remember that. Okay, that's all I needed, is just to know that there's something better out there in the world. When uh, I'm Ray, watching- Ray Mysterio versus Jushin Liger. Sick. Yeah. Because when I'm spending 15 minutes of my very short time on this planet watching Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake standing in the place that Ric Flair once did, I need to know that there's a future. Now, uh, next week, yeah, maybe the worst Starcade of them all. We'll see because we are going to finish the December Starcades this year. We're going to make it all the way to Starcade 2000. Oh, boy. Uh, got that to look forward to. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.